Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I am Shaq. I'm one of the pastors here at Garden City Church, and it's so exciting to, to be here, and it's, it's nice today. Like, my birthday's on Tuesday, and it's normal. Thank you. It's, it's, the la- it's the last years of my 20s, so I'm, I'm still young. Um, but, but yes, uh, it's a nice day. And we're going to continue our time working through the book of Mark. And I want to give you a little bit of caution. I'm actually going to be a little bit more direct today. Um, so prepare yourselves. So again, the microphone is a little bit different for me. I usually have the headset, so I'm going to stay here, but I'm still going to speak with power. Um, so listen. Um, so two weeks ago, Pastor Dennis led us through the opening verses of Mark 1. Dennis beautifully expounded on Vespasian's propaganda campaign that was aimed to build and maintain the narrative that support his position as an emperor or a son of God and also a Messiah figure. However, the, uh, the author Mark writes to contradict that campaign by reassuring Gentiles in Rome that Jesus alone is the true Son of God. He alone is the true Messiah who is capable of rescuing and redeeming people, not the emperor. So after John's imprisonment, Jesus continues this construction of the way that John iterated in Mark 1 to 13. So just as John the Baptist, Jesus preached throughout Galilee with this similar proclamation of the good news and an urgent call to repentance. He says in verse 15, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. As Jesus embarks on this new way of God's rule, his revolutionary preaching evokes immediate response by two pairs of brothers. Simon and Andrew, and James and John. So we pick up right here at our passage in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 to 28. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read it. Um, If you don't have your Bibles, you can look to either of the screens. And this is what it says. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum, When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogues and began to preach. The teachers, or the people, sorry, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him, be quiet, come out of this man, he ordered. And at that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then he came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. 
It has such authority, even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. Let's pray. God, you have created my mouth. You have created our bodies. You have created our minds. God, would you speak and communicate to us? Would you go beyond the gift of technology that you would open up our ears to understand what you are trying to say to us today? And speak through me, God. May your word come forth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's look at this real authoritative Jesus in his messianic mission by considering three things. One, Jesus teaches with authority. Two, Jesus deconstructs authority. And three, Jesus reconstructs authority. So point one, Jesus teaches with authority. In the opening verse, we notice Jesus' departure from the wilderness to the heart of the Jewish social order, the holy time and space of a synagogue on the Sabbath. Mark uses the repeated phrase, immediately. He does this to draw the audience quickly into the story to maintain their attention. He says, immediately, Jesus went into the synagogue, the place of worship, and began teaching. Traditionally, the synagogue had no set teachers. Instead, they had the custom of the freedom of the synagogue, where learned guests were invited to speak on the scripture reading for that day. This custom gave Jesus the opportunity to preach. He was a rabbi. So while Jesus is preaching, the standard way of teaching begins to shift. Mark tells us the people, including the 12 disciples, were amazed and astonished at his teaching. Now, it wasn't that just because Jesus taught something unusual, nor was the amazement of his teaching because Jesus was a fancy teacher. They are astonished because Jesus taught with real authority. And his teachings were different from the teachers of the law. To share a little bit about the synagogue and the scribes, here's a little bit more information about that. The teachers were, quote, the elders and the prior teachers of the rabbis. Originality was not valued by the Jewish religious experts in Jesus' day. They passed down authoritative traditions of the elders, which often favored their own reputation. Theologically, this system functioned as a very disordered rigid and manipulative work-based righteousness where villagers felt the burden to earn their salvation. Under the devious control of rabbi traditions, 
Villagers were also held captive socially by the political and economic interests of the Pharisees. The theology and social structures were inseparable and suffocating to the people. The revered rabbis handle all legal matters, including property, taxes, estates, and contracts. Can you imagine if our preachers do that today? Pretty often, right? Church runs as a business now. And now, Jesus steps on their, dirt, on their turf, the synagogue, and he is not quoting the former rabbis. He is speaking pure truth, absolute truth, clear truth, practical truth from God that if applied, it can change one person's life. He wasn't offering helpful hints for a happy life. He proclaimed the sovereign authority of God, calling people to obey his authoritative word. Once again, the hearers were amazed because they never heard any of the scribes teach this way. So Jesus exercised his supreme power and authoritative preaching that was so different from the scribal traditions that it became a, a direct threat to the scribes' power and authority over the people. Which leads to our second point, Jesus deconstructing the authority of the scribes. Crammed in between these statements of the crowd's amazement, we encounter here for the first time Jesus' symbolic act of exorcism and healing. In verse 23 and 24, Mark uses that word again, immediately. A man in a synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice the clear cause and effect. Immediately Jesus started preaching and immediately there was something of response to his teaching. So what terrified the demon? What terrified the demon was truth. I know that the, it, it knew that, that the arrival of Jesus was also the arrival of truth. The demon knew that he had developed an untrue, false system of religion, that it was highly successful in Capernaum and all throughout Israel. Concerning Jesus' piercing truth, Notice that it is the spirit and the man that initiates the conversation. The demon challenges Jesus with a defiant and a contemptuous remark. The demon says, why are you interfering with us? Jesus of Nazareth, speaking poorly of where he came from. But this defiance quickly turns to, to fear. He continues by saying, have you come to destroy us? 
The demon then attempts to gain control over Jesus by naming him the Holy One of God. Just as the scribes who would try to control and test Jesus with their authority and understanding of God's word, just as this demon does also. But it earns the demon only a stern rebuke. Jesus says, be quiet and come out of this man. From the beginning of Mark's gospel, we see part of the purpose for what, why Jesus came here to earth, to confront Satan and strip him of his power. Jesus then liberates, dignifies, reclassifies, and restores the social wholeness denied to this unnamed man who suffered from the hands of social and spiritual power structures. Jesus liberates him. But there must be more to this miracle story than what's obvious to us. To interpret this exorcism solely as curing a possessed man is to, is to miss its profound political and social impact. The more times I reread the demon's concern with Jesus, it raised an interesting question. Upon whose behalf is the demon pleading? Who is the us being described here? By Mark's narrative, it can only be the group already identified in the conflict theme, the scribal elite, whose space Jesus is threatening. The spirit in a synagogue personifies the religious establishment whose authority sustains the dominant Jewish social order. Therefore, Jesus, as a symbolic act, addresses a symbolic system that oppresses. He courageously demonstrates his authority and power over systems that seek to degrade, harm, abuse, own, and control individuals who rightly embody the image of God. This is why the prophet Isaiah iterates God's word to Israel in chapter 49, verse 25. Those captive to the mighty will be retaken. The prey of the strong will be rescued. Jesus was on a mission to liberate people. And this leads us to our third point Reconstruct an authority. The people were amazed, utterly amazed, and alarmed at Jesus' words. The same words used in his teaching was the same authority he used against the demon. In contrast to the magicians and exorcisms of Jesus' day, there was no technique, no spell, or no symbolic act. There was only the words of Jesus. There was no category familiar to them which explained the sovereign power that Jesus spoke and demonstrated. They have not seen the scribes of their day talk like this. 
and move in this type of authority. Their astonishment is reflected in this hope-filled question. What sort of new teaching is this? It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey him. They cannot fully understand Jesus. They cannot fully understand who he is. They cannot fully understand his presence. But they cannot keep this to themselves. So they share it with people. They share it with the whole entire region of Galilee. They are completely changed by this authority of Jesus. So when we look at this, we may be asking the question, what does this mean for us today? How does this passage interact with us? Now, I'm not standing here before you saying I'm an expert in exorcism, or I can have some type of power to demonstrate that. But here's what I can offer to you. When we begin to talk about spiritual warfare, Christians either overemphasize it or we underemphasize it. We spiritualize things that are clearly natural and we neutralize things or we naturalize things that are clearly spiritual. So in regards to this message, we don't expect evil spirits to occupy the space we call worship. It's not on our radar to think or believe that it is possible. We assume that this place is safe and no demon can enter. But don't be deceived. Spirits do exist within the church. Now, if someone was to manifest a spirit in this room today, some of us wouldn't know what to do. Some of us will leave the church and not return. How many of you guys would not return if you actually saw a manifesting spirit in this room? Some of us will be uncomfortable. The spirit against whom we battle may be individual. It may be a person. But then they also may be found in our ideologies, our institutions, or our political tribes. In fact, the most devious power at work today are probably not the ones that possess people, but the ones that exist in controlled power structures like governments, schools, religious institutions, communities, and economies. The hideous stronghold of patriarchy, misogyny, racism, spiritual and sexual abuse, narcissism, greed, and feel-good culture runs deep within these walls of the church. The sacred place where, where people set aside the agenda of God in the name of self. Often, we try to downplay the pro, uh, programmatic spirits so it feels like there's less work for Jesus to accomplish when the entrenched racial hierarchy isn't that bad, when racism isn't that bad, 
when men leading churches isn't that bad. Jesus doesn't have to do much with changing the hearts. See, we hate to name our sin. And if we don't know what to name, how do we expect to be set free from it? We must tell the whole truth. If Jesus wasn't afraid to tell the truth, then why should we? Say it again. If Jesus, who confronted this spirit, wasn't afraid to tell the truth, then why should we? See, we rather uphold the image of holiness and purity for the sake of unity rather than exposing our darkness and brokenness so we can experience godliness. We rather protect the demons among us so that our so we rather protect the demons among us than to have our imperfections called out. We use the term that's divisive. That's too divisive. Don't say that that's divisive. That's divisive. As a shield to deflect ourselves from the truth and righteousness of God. Oh, how deceitful we have become. We psychologically and emotionally kill, scapegoated, silenced, and rejected the prophetic voices of our day that challenge systems and shout freedom to the domain of Caesar. Instead of seeing the emergent freedom and liberation of God's kingdom, we cry out, intruder, intruder. We completely align ourselves with the empires that are, that are in total opposition with the gospel of Jesus. See, it's easy to detach ourselves from this equation. People, and especially my white brothers and sisters, who hold to what me, what to, let me say that again. People, and especially my white brothers and sisters, who hold to what might be described as progressive, progressive Christianity or a progressive form of politics tend to think the conversation doesn't apply to them. You may ask, or think, I voted for the right political candidate. I'm in, right? I can quote all the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air episodes. I'm, I'm, I'm in, right? I have a black pastor, black friend, even a black husband. I must be in, right? See, your proximity to brown bodies doesn't give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. Just because I represent a approachable, safe, and comfortable form of blackness that feeds your white imagination doesn't mean you're excluded from the conversation. We must take a step back and ask the question, where have I exploited, controlled, harmed, or even benefited from the degradation of other human beings and people of color. 
You're not excluded from the question either. We do the same damage to our very own people, especially our youth. See, any form of power that is being misused is not just oppressive to the person who it is being directed at, but it's destructive to those who oppress. We all bear, all of us, bear the collective trauma of misusing power and privilege. We have been harmed, and we have done harm to other people. But here's the good news. We long for the day where social structures are ruled by the kingship of Jesus. We long for the day where every nation will stand at the feet of Mount Zion, asking him to teach us his ways and direct our paths. We long for the day where our salvation arrives on a white horse. We long for that day. The greatest truth about this longing, that if we are in Christ, we are all beneficiaries of this redemption. The redemption of Jesus repositioning shalom to all creation. Friends, shalom will have the last word. Not demonic powers or those who seek power from others. Shalom will be active. Shalom will be met with righteousness and justice. Shalom will be here among us. So the question we have to ask is, what does this look like for us to look at the religious systems and structures and name the dark, evil impurities that exist there? Also, the practices we endure and defend. I want us to think about that question. Again, I am a little bit uncomfortable speaking about this because I, I've been in, in spaces a lot. This is me not talking from the notes. But I've been in spaces a lot where I had to mold my, my, my being and mold my, my vocabulary to the audience of my white brothers and sisters. But I want us to really think about ways that we have really benefited from systems of power. And I'm not trying to say you're demonic. I'm not trying to say you're evil. But I also want us to look at ways that we have, again, benefited from these systems. Because repentance is not shameful, but repentance can be joyful. So consider that. Well, let's pray, and then uh, we can move on to our time of communion. And um, yeah, let's do that. Let's pray. God, um, In these times, God, I, I know that you can speak. I know that you have full power and authority over all systems, all power. And God, on the behalf of your people, 
God, we communally and individually, we confess that we are sorry. We confess to you, God, that we have become power-hungry people. And Lord, I know that I have been in places where I want power, I want control. And God, we confess our sin to you. God, help us, help us to see that only good power rests in your hands. God, speak your truth over us. Speak your love over us in this time. We thank you for Jesus in the ways that he approaches us. In the way that he speaks to us and brings us back to you. And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.